This is Space 101.1. KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Welcome to another live episode of Cascade of History, the only history show that's live on the radio every Sunday night. Talking to people all around the great Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. We want to c- connect with people who are doing interesting things with and for Pacific Northwest history. Uh, let's see. We've got a lot of great stuff tonight on the show. Um, later on, we're going to talk to Jim Kirshner, who writes for the Spokesman Review and has written a number of books about Northwest history over the years. We're also going to check in with an author who's written a new book, uh, a, a, not a fictionalized account. It's, it's, a, it's a historical Yes, I don't know what we'll actually call it. It's based on um, some characters, her great-great-great-grandfather's younger brother, Duncan, who was involved with the Hudson's Bay Company 200 years ago, Alix Christie. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her first name right. I should have gotten her first name pronunciation. I was going to get that when I talked to her on the phone before her segment, but I didn't think about that ahead of time. All right, sorry about that. Anyway, um, we're broadcasting live, as we do every Sunday night, from the old Master-at-Arms quarters at Sandpoint Naval Air Station, known better nowadays as Magnuson Park here in Seattle on the shores of historic Lake Washington. We're here for the next hour. We're here every Sunday night. We're on Space 101.1 FM. It's a great community station. It's uh, There's all sorts of great local programming all week around the clock. Um, if you're participating on that Give Big campaign that's happening uh, early, I think it's Tuesday and Wednesday this coming week, the 2nd and the 3rd of May, it's a campaign uh, for local nonprofit organizations where you can contribute and your money gets... Um, Additional funds come in through a bunch of local donors and everything, but support your favorite nonprofit, and hopefully one of your favorite nonprofits is Space 101.1 FM. If you go to our website, space101fm.org, you can see how to donate there and keep great programs on the air and keep programs like Cascade of History on the air, too. We're all volunteers here. The money pays for the electricity and stuff like that. Um, anyway, uh, do do think about supporting Space 101.1 FM. It's a great station. There are so many great programs on this station all throughout the week and Cascade of History, too. Um, all right. Uh, you might remember we're about oh, more than halfway through a long chunk of vintage audio from 1938. Do you remember how the uh, last week's installment of Washington at Work, J.C. Penney, 1938, ended? And we happen to select the marking of a pair of gloves. Now, what girl in your department would be working on gloves, and where could I ask a question of her? What girl was working on gloves in your department, and what, where could I ask a question of her? We're going to find out the answer to that question as we work our way slowly, painfully through that. I, th- I think the whole, thing, whole thing's only a half hour long, the entire recording, but we're just taking our time, two, three minutes a week, to get through that whole recording. We'll find out later in the show how that all turns out. Not, not the ending, of course, but just the next step of an, exploring that old department store as it was opening down at 2nd and Pike what, 85 years ago, 1938. Uh, oh, and he actually, um, in tonight's episode, tonight's installment, the great, let's see, the grandfather of a listener to the show is going to be mentioned. I don't want to give away any, any give away the surprise. Got some other great vintage audio. I've had a request. Um, 
One of our listeners, a guy named Arthur, who I know listens to the show a lot and I hope was tuned in tonight, um, got a song he's been requesting. Or he thought we were going to play it last week or the week before. I'm finally getting around to playing this song. I don't want to give that away. We'll play that later in the show. Um, and maybe you've got the Kraken game on in the background. As I was driving over here tonight, it was tied 0-0, and the Kraken are now up one nothing, at least as of 15 minutes ago. Don't quote me on that. It's Game 7 in the Kraken's first ever playoff series, and I'll, I'm just going to have to wait until after the show's over to see what turns out, or to see how it turns out. Uh, anyway, and if you're listening to this on the podcast, you probably know how it turns out by now anyway. All right. Now, but before we get to our other, those other great guests and that other uh, vintage audio, I want to invite our first guest on the phone. It's... Um, Tony Lampa, he, let's see if I can get him on the line here. Let's see if Tony's there. Hang on one second, Tony. Tony, can you hear me? I can hear you oh, just fine. I love that when that works. It's always, it's always uh, such a thrill for me when the technical part of the show comes together. Can't say much for the quality of the show. That's beyond my control. But the actual technical part, I do have a little bit of control over, and when it comes together, I'm always grateful. So um, did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yeah, you did. Okay, great. Now, I reached out to the Oregon Department of Forestry sometime last week because I saw a post on Facebook about a lookout tower that's down near Sisters, Oregon, on a place called Hinkle Butte, and they said, well, uh, we have a guy who worked there for a long time. Is that, that true? That is true. I'm afraid to admit it. <laughs> so, first of all, for people who don't know their geography very well, where is Sisters, Oregon, and where is Hinkle Butte? Well... It's, uh, I call it the Bermuda Triangle. It's Sisters, Bend, and Redmond is uh, Central Oregon, and I'm just north of Sisters, uh, and uh, White, Whitechess Creek Canyon, uh, Hinkle Butte. It's a little cinder knob that sticks up about five miles to the north of Sisters. Nice. And that's been my summer home. Well, it was my summer home for uh, over 20 years. Uh, and uh, it's really, it's a great tower because it's very accessible. I can stay in my own, sleep in my own bed and be up at the tower in a half hour. Wow. Not one of the, it's not like one of those ones where you have to ride a pack horse in for three days and, oh. Oh. <laughs> and you're oh, so. there for the summer, you know. <laughs> oh, so you worked there, you were there with the during the day and you'd go home at night. You betcha. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was really nice. And it was that lookout tower has been up there since the... Uh, since the 30s, wow. and uh, they rebuilt the tower back in the early 60s, and what was strange about it was, is when they built the original tower, there was really nothing out there except the Hinkle Butte Lookout Tower, and then as Sisters Country grew, uh, there were subdivisions all over, uh, I'm kind of like in the middle of, oh, three or four different subdivisions where... I can look down and see Indian Ford, and I can see Panoramic View, and I can see Tollgate and Crossroads, and it was a very good location, and because of the accessibility, then people could come to see me, too, so my wife would bring the dogs up and bring lunch, and we'd just have a great old day, and, uh, you know, I... Uh, you have to really get used to your own company and kind of like yourself a bit. So uh, it worked out really well for me because I always had a guitar or a ukulele or a dog or someone to talk to. So uh, I did pretty good with the whole thing. So what you year know? did you first, what, were your, what was your first year? Was that, was that the first lookout you worked out, and what year was that? Yeah, it was kind of, I fell into it by accident. I... <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. So, uh, yeah, in the late 70s, early 80s, that's what I kind of did was I jumped on uh, tree planting crews and thinning crews and uh, 
just kind of did forest contract work, and then there was an opportunity for me to join a uh, a fire crew in 1981 that the Oregon Department of Forestry was trying to put together, and uh, so I jumped on that in '81 and spent a couple of years on the crew, and ended up getting promoted to crew boss, and then they gave me an engine and. I had a crew, and it just went on and on. But uh, I had some medical issues in the uh, mid-'90s that uh, was making it a little difficult for me to keep up with the fire game. So, uh, you know, it was the kind of thing where I didn't want to really sell shoes at Kenny's. You know, (laughs) I figured I'd kind of stay with what I had for the first few years. And uh, I got the position up on Hankel, and it worked out really well for me because I – I knew the dispatchers, I knew all the fire engines, and I knew the locations real well. So I just kind of slid into the transition, and uh, it was a real comfortable way for me to uh, spend my summers. Well, you know, take me to a, to a typical day. Give me a typical day on, on, on Hinkle Butte. Okay, typical day, uh, white knuckle express all the way up to the tower and get there at 930 I would go in service. I would do a complete scan of the area to make sure everything was good. Then I'd warm up some coffee, kind of hang out, play my guitar a little bit, and uh, by then one of the engine crews would come on up and see me, and uh, the whole day was just kind of keeping your eyes out, you know, just making sure that there was no smoke, nothing out of the ordinary. And people said, like, you know, how do you do that? It's like when you walk in your kitchen in the morning and there's a coffee cup on the counter that's not supposed to be there that's what it was like of oh wow there's a smoke right there let me turn that thing in and then uh what i would do is shoot an azimuth on the osborne osborne firefighter finder finder (laughs) and report it to dispatch and then by that time the other lookouts in the area would see it and then they would cross out my azimuth with their azimuth and they'd be able to locate the 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 fire almost to a pinpoint and uh, start getting the crews going in the right direction and uh, get somebody over the fire with uh, air attack to uh, see the extent of the damage and I get the whole show started then I just kind of shut up and stay out of the way. <laughs> and, and how often like in a, in a typical summer, I know there's no such thing as a typical summer, but say there was a typical summer, how often would you see smoke and it would turn out to be something that you, know, you had to report and the other lookouts would all zero in on and figure out where it was and it would turn into a big fire? Well, you know, it was uh, the hurry up and wait thing where you you go days without a smoke. And then when we would get lightning, that was when everything was was really a lot of fun for me because, you know, to be up on a on a 30 foot tower in the middle of a lightning storm. (laughs) Talk about fun. So uh, and then after the storm blows through, then, of course, we're getting sleeper fires for three days on a typical lightning storm we'll pull 20 30 fires in one afternoon one evening and then the days for three or four days afterwards we got to uh scan the area a lot because that's when the sleeper fires would come up and uh so it just it was really no set pattern you know some some weeks we'd go a week or two without a smoke and then we'd get a storm and we'd have 20 30 fires within a matter of two days mm-hmm. so was there a lot of camaraderie with the other lookout tower folks? Oh yeah, you know it's kind of a weird, uh, it's kind of a weird little relationship that you have because you talk to these people all summer long, 
and you realize that if they walked by you, you wouldn't recognize them because <laughs> you just. I have kind of a distinctive voice, and so uh, whenever I would say Hinkle, I got a smoke report. <laughs> Everybody from Camp Sherman to Lapine would go, "Oh, he's turning in a fire." So, <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm good friends with everybody on the radio. You know, I I talk to Black Butte, I talk to Green Ridge and Lava Butte, but um, sometimes I've I've talked to people for ten years and never seen their faces. Wow. Same same with the dispatchers. I'm uh, got a great rapport with all the people in dispatch and. Uh, wouldn't know what they looked like. You know, I'd kind of walk in and they'd go, God, who is this guy that just walked in? And I'd say, I'm Hinkle. And they'd go, oh, you're Hinkle. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, they're all reaching for their tasers and the security <laughs> button, but no, he's here. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah. So how so, large an area then? So if you're looking out from the top of Lookout Tower, how many miles in the distance can you see? Or like, Is there some way to quantify the number of acres or square miles that you could actually see? Oh, I'm sure there's square miles, but I haven't got the number. But pretty much what we can do is I can see from Sisters Tower, I can see clear to Lapine, which is about 50 miles. I can see wow. Smith Rocks, which is another... 30 miles off to the east, I can see the Warm Springs Reservation, which is another 40 miles to the north. Wow. Of course, the Cascade Mountains and Sisters and Redmond area, Klein Butte. So I could probably see 50 uh, 50 miles, 60 miles in all directions. Is that one of the reasons they still operate that with an actual human being up there and they haven't just sort of kind of like made it obsolete by by other fire detection techniques? Yeah, what they're doing now is with the the, – with the cameras on the towers, but because of my unique location, I was so close to so many subdivisions in the sisters area. So uh, okay. uh, by the time it was just an extra set of eyes, um, probably within my five mile radius, I, I had a subdivision. I, there, there was just hundreds and hundreds of homes. I remember when I first started in the eighties, I would go up to that tower at, uh, in the dusk after chasing lightning strikes and, uh, you couldn't see any house lights up there oh, for wow. miles, and now it's just like it's like a Christmas tree up there at night now because of all the different houses and places and the development. Oh, so that all came in in the time you were there. That all the bulk of that development happened in that land around that area. Yeah, it uh, gradually. It's like one of those things where the drip, 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 and suddenly you have <laughs> sprawl. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned yeah. lightning. Did did did, uh, did you ever have to with uh, withstand a lightning strike or a lightning strike nearby? Or what was that like? Well, we got uh, we have several strike trees around the uh, lookout tower that were close calls. I remember a couple of years ago, my my uh, friend Ben Duda and supervisor was up at the tower with me during the storm, and one hit the tree right next to the lookout, and we just kind of looked at each other and went, whoa, and laughed and chuckled. <laughs> and it was, you know, death-defying. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's, I've had strikes close to the place. Uh, the, the lookout tower is grounded, so there's really no danger of anything happening. It's just, uh, you yeah. know, right or don't. And there's this, you know, there's this long tradition in the Northwest of like the, you know, Jack Kerouac working in the 50s up by um, uh, the North Cascades up uh, near the Canadian border. And there's like that woman, I can't remember her last name, Martha, somebody wrote that book called Tatouche about being a, a female uh, lookout operator in the, during the World War II or the, or the mid 40s. 
Wow. When you're up there, are you aware of the literary stuff? Are you thinking about, like, wow, I'm in this long line of 100 years of this kind of thing, or is it more just kind of a job for you? No, no, no. I, it's, uh, I've always felt really connected to the community, and to me that was kind of a way to give back to the community, if yeah, you will. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, I have several friends who are located all over central Oregon, and when the fires, when the lightning strikes, I'd always keep a close eye on, of course, my 10 acres and my neighbors and all my friends, but uh, everything in general. But uh, yeah, it, it, I, was, I felt very connected to it. And like I say, I'm, I just get to turn them in and then I step back and let the pros take care of the rest of it, you know? And when was the last day of the season for you typically? Oh, I would start usually around the middle of June and by the middle of October, they would be done with me. So it okay. was... Uh, it was a great way to spend the summers, and uh, you know, like I say, you have a room with a view. It's about the best look. It's about the best view in Sisters. Yeah. And, <laughs> and would you able if, if hikers came by? Were, were you um, obligated, or did you get to entertain them and kind of show them the fire finder and that kind of thing? Or well, you know, it all depends. There's uh, some people you. Um, some people you like a little other than others just by their <laughs> attitudes when they come up, you know. I, uh, I've i said hello to so many people. I actually, uh, a real funny story, I have a couple of very good friends I play music with now, and I met them on top of Hinkle. They were looking for, they were buying real estate, <laughs> and they asked the realtor, what's that tower up there for? And he says, Oh, it's a fire tower. You should go check it out. So they they come strolling up the thing, and I'm sitting on the deck playing my guitar, and they're like, hey, what are you doing up there? And I said, well, I'm looking for fires and playing my guitar. <laughs> and uh, so, of course, they had to come up because they told me they were musicians, and then so we all started talking, and uh, sure enough, they ended up buying a house right below the lookout, and... Uh, we play music almost uh, every week, and we've wow. been performing in different places in Central Oregon. And uh, you know, and then there's people that come up and just uh, say, "What are you doing up there?" And they shake their heads and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a strange bunch. Uh, the one thing I, I remember telling you when we were chatting the other day about this old gal that walked up to the tower. And she was probably in her mid to upper 80s, and this was probably five, six years ago. And she had told me that she was the lookout for Henkel on, in 1952 wow. in the old tower before they tore the old tower down. And uh, so she hobbled up the stairs and looked around, and uh, she saw my little lightning stool that I stand on during storms, or I'm supposed to stand on. And she said, that was my lightning stool back in the 50s. And I thought, wow. boy, we're really keeping things updated here. So. Now, for, for <laughs> someone who's never seen one, describe how what makes a lightning stool a lightning stool? Well, they have those little insulators, electrical insulators, like for feet, for wow. the pegs. So you're really just kind of standing on this little, oh, I'd say it's probably three by three, and it's got little insulators on the feet so that you stand up there and uh, you take a direct strike that you're not going to get fried. Wow. Uh, it might blow the windows out of the tower, but you sure won't get electrocuted. But so, you can't uh, But you can't have your feet touching the ground. You have to be sitting on the stool or kneeling no, or standing no, no, up on it? No, you stand on the stool. Oh, you is, stand on it? Yeah, so you kind oh. of feel silly standing up there all by yourself on this stool. You <laughs> how, know? how high is the ceiling? Do you have to crouch down to not touch this? <laughs> yeah, well, no, there was, there was plenty of 
plenty of headroom for me, but still, <laughs> sometimes you'd have to. I sure hope nobody sees me up here standing on this stupid ass stool wow. you know, wow. in the middle of a, a, a lightning storm. That's but, crazy. Yeah. You, you don't have your guitar handy right there, do you? No, I sure oh, don't. Shoot, I should have asked you because I, I did. You did you were you writing songs about being a lookout tower guy and stuff? Were you singing covers or what kind of songs were you doing? Oh, uh, we're doing cover stuff, uh, a lot of Americana stuff. I've got sure. a couple songs I do about Hinkle and uh, the lookout. In fact, I was telling you about Rick and Sue that when we perform, we call ourselves the Hinkle Butte Ramblers. <laughs> Because they met me on Hinkle Butte, and they're still living at the base of it. That's so, great. Uh, you... Yeah, it's a great life. It's been a real good experience for me, and uh, I have no regrets about it. I got to work with great people and uh, have made relationships and friendships that uh, that, are, that are going for 40 years now. Wow. Uh, now, we, so... we, could, we couldn't convince you to do a little a cappella, one of your Hinkle Butte songs, oh, could you? Oh, God, are you kidding Oh come on! We'd love it. It would, it would be so. It would be, it's Americana. You got a big audience. You know, people loving the stuff. They're friendly. They're they're really nice people. They'd love to hear you. It's kind of just a, just a few bars. You know, just uh, boy, I don't know what to say about that. I uh, you really caught me off guard there. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I would have been more prepared. I would have had my ukulele tuned up, and I could have oh, done that. Man, uh, well, we'll have to have you back. Maybe at the end of the season, we'll have kind of an end of the fire season. Uh, sure. re- revisit Hinkle Butte and get the ukulele out. Get Rick and Sue to come up and get the whole oh, game man, together. I think they'd love to do that. So, I think. Okay, uh, I'm going to mark my calendar for sometime in October. We're going to have a, a, a re- revisit Hinkle Butte and give uh, give Tony Lumpa heads up to get his ukulele tuned and out and sing a couple songs about the uh, about right. the Lookout Tower days. Well, all right, Felix, hey, I'll be waiting for your buzz. Okay? Hey, really nice talking. You. Thanks for giving us a taste of what it's like to be a, a Lookout Tower person down there in your sister's Oregon, uh, Tony Lumpa. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Have a good night, all righty? Thank you, Felix. All right. It's been fun. My Bye-bye pleasure. Now. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tony Lompa, longtime lookout down there at Hinkle Butte. It looks like Hankle Butte, but it's pronounced Hinkle Butte. It's H-E-N-K-L-E down near Sisters, Oregon. Boy, I like the idea of having the uh, the Hinkle Butte Ramblers on the in an October episode, get them to do a couple numbers like that. Uh Felt bad for putting Tony on the spot there about uh, doing an a, uh, acapella number. But, you know, that's my job. That's my job is to try to get, get the most out of the guests. All right. Well, uh, in a moment, we're going to talk to Jim Kirshner over in Spokane about his work uh, as a writer for the Spokes and Review and writer of numerous books about Northwest history. But before we do that, we're going to get to Episode 9, Installment 9. I keep saying Episode. I mean to say Installment 9 of our little 85-year uh, trip back in time to J.C. Penney in downtown Seattle on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. There's Miss Dranger right over here. Well, you mean to say we'll uh, have to ask her a question from the balcony? Yes, uh, she's right over there. Well, this is uh, a balcony scene in reverse because the Juliet happens to be downstairs and, well, I won't go on with that. Are you Miss Dranger? Yes. What are you doing? Arranging hosiery. What kind of hosiery? Nice silk hosiery. Is that the kind of hosiery, the fancy kind? I see. Well, now, uh, we were just talking to Mr. Goodrich about locating a pair of gloves that we saw marked up on the uh, fifth floor. Where are gloves down there in your department? Gloves are to my left. You suppose that that uh, buff-colored pair of gloves that we saw up on the fifth floor would be there on that table to your left? Yes, they would. What kind are they? Uh, Pigskin gloves. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Berenger. Now, we're back (laughs) into our mezzanine balcony effect. 
and uh, proudness if we have a legitimate chuckle here. And a kind of a sour, I think that's the first kind of a yelling contest on a broadcast of this type for a long time. And uh, if Bob will lead the way, by means of electrical transcription, we're going to go whisking down to the basement floor. Well, Bob, it looks as though we had whisked down to the basement floor in no time flat, thanks to electrical transcription. But uh, to be a little serious, before we go into a description of the basement here at J.C. Penney's at Second and Pike, uh, when we opened the program, you'll recall, it was our pleasure to read a telegram from Governor Martin. Now, Washington at Work has also received a message from the mayor of Seattle. It's appropriate that we receive such a message because the new J.C. Penney store being featured on today's program is one of the largest stores in a vast organization here in the state. The message from Mary Langley is as follows. Quote, your program designed to awaken realization of contributions made by industry to community, as well as individual welfare, is commendable. We understand that this week's dramatization relates to department stores and retail trade. This is an important factor in our community life. And I am glad to note that you, through Washington at Work, are calling it to the attention of the residents of the Pacific Northwest. Signed, Arthur B. Langley, Mayor of Seattle. And now, Bob, just a word or two uh, about what goes on down here on the basement floor. Yes, a word or two. We'll have to wait till next week to find out what goes down here on the basement floor of the old J.C. Penney when it was the new J.C. Penney in downtown Seattle back in 1938. Uh, you're on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. We're the only live history radio program focused on the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. We try to jump around. Uh, in recent episodes, we've been in British Columbia. We've been in Oregon. Been a while since we've been in Idaho, and it's been a while since we've been to Spokane. I want to get Jim Kirshner on the line right now, and let's see if I can bring him on right now. Jim, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Ah, terrific. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. I, um, I've been seeing your byline. I have relatives in Spokane. I often sit there on a Sunday morning and read the Spokesman Review or some other day of the week, and I'll see your columns about 100 years ago and that sort of thing. I know you've yeah. also written a number of books, and I think it's the first time we've ever talked in real time. So thanks for coming on the show tonight. No, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So you have been you've been writing about Northwest history for a long time. What what was the first your first time you dipped your toe into the waters about writing about Northwest history? Well, I was a uh, reporter and columnist for the Spokesman Review um, for many years. Um, but you know, I was I was on the I, I was an opinion columnist and humor columnist and restaurant reviewer and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, but my degree in uh, from Lewis and Clark College in Portland was history, and I've always loved history, so I always tried to, um, I always thought that it was important to uh, do stories about local history, so I kept doing that all, uh, all through my career at the Spokesman. Um, you know, I mean, one of our goals was to tell people about the community they live in and how can you know about the community you live in if you don't know its past yeah so yeah. so i did a lot of uh, historical uh stories and uh, i guess the main the one that i remember the most that really uh the biggest one i did was i did a a, a series a big package like a multi-page package on um, segregation in spokane um you know, Spokane is a pretty white city. It's, yeah, uh, it yeah. was only had a two percent uh, black population. So, 
their stories had not been told, and um, people thought that Spokane didn't really have any, uh, you know, segregation history. Yeah. But I had been doing, uh, I'd been interviewing some people in the black community and got my eyes opened about that. Yes, of course there was. I mean, the white population didn't know about it or didn't need to know about it, but the black population certainly did. So um, I did a really big series on that, and that led to a lot of other uh, things that I had written, including uh, a biography of Carl Maxey, who was uh, a civil rights leader from Spokane and really one of the most influential civil rights leaders in the state, and I ended up writing his biography for the University of Washington Press as a result, as a direct result of doing that package for the spokesman. It, it's amazing to me, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's maybe amazing is not the word, but the fact that local media, whether it's a spokesman review or, you know, with the column you do, um, Seattle Times with Now and Then, which Paul Dorpat started, and now um, Jean Sherrard and... Uh, and uh, I'm blanking on the name of the other guy who does it. I mean, he's going to kill me. He's a friend of mine. Um, but there's sort of this, um, it's, it's taken for granted. A lot of real estate on local media is taken up by history stores. I see TV stations doing it, radio stations. It's sort of, I mean, it makes perfect sense because it's a great way to kind of uh, talk about local culture and reflect local culture and tell stories that are, that are hyper-local because um, it's not going to be like some national publication is going to come in and do the kinds of stories that, Someone like you can do for the Spokesman Review or like um, Gene and Clay Eels. There's his name. Okay, finally came back to me. <laughs> Sorry, Clay, if you're listening to the podcast or to the broadcast. Um, but it's 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 cool because and I love that. I, that's whenever I'm in Spokane, I, I, I look very always look forward to saying, oh, what's Jim Kirshner? What's he got from 100 years ago today in Spokane? It's kind of a nice way to sort of. I don't know. It, it's even people it, who, even people who think they don't like history, I think, would look at the 100 years ago today column. Yeah. And, and uh, I think. You know, the reason that I'm, I've been surprised really at how um, much the editors um, back this idea, and I, honestly, the idea wasn't mine. It was the editor's idea in the first place. Um, but but their idea was that, look, we, we, need, we need to have as much local content as we can, and where else is anybody going to get Spokane history? Yeah. There's nowhere else you're going to get it. You're not going to get it. From any kind of a you know national publication or anything or in a wire story or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I mean this started with the editors. That, that so let me just a little background. Um, uh, in my uh, last few years at the Spokesman, I, I had been there for 25 years. Um, but the last few years, an editor basically said, "Hey, what do you think about doing a daily history column?" And I, I basically said, "Yeah, that's a good idea." Um, <laughs> to do it daily, it has to be it has to be something I can do quickly. Yeah, because um, I have a lot of other responsibilities. And um, and we finally settled on. I mean, it took a while to figure it out. At first, I was going to do a this day in history and kind of look through various years, um, but that was just so time consuming. <laughs> I don't have time to go through every, you know, all 150 years of our past. And I, you know, and then I kind of settled I was going to do like 100 years sometimes, 50 years sometimes, and 25 years sometimes. But honestly, the 50 and 25 year 
stuff was really not very interesting. I mean, <laughs> I got to tell you, um, I, mean, I don't know if this is Spokane or not, but you know, Spokane was not an exciting place 50 years ago. <laughs> But it was a really exciting place 100 years ago. Don't tell the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> well, it was just like, you know, 100 years ago. And, well, when I started it, it was in the uh, 20, you know, like around 20, I don't know, 2008, maybe. Uh-huh. So we were looking at like 1908. 1908, I, there, the, the population had just boomed, and there was all of these people coming in to work at the mines and the logging and there was all these different ethnic groups and all this crazy you know crime and and rabble rousing and laborish labor disputes and all of this stuff going on a hundred years ago and I find I eventually settled on a hundred years ago as the everyday piece just because it, the content was so much better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was it was just amazing, and um, you know, the town, the city had grown, it, um, had doubled in ten years. You know, it had gone from like, uh, you know, to twenty five thousand in eighteen ninety to fifty thousand in nineteen hundred to to a hundred thousand. 1910, it was just this massive what was, uh, influx of people. What was driving that in those decades? What was the thing particularly driving that growth in Spokane? Uh, mining. Uh, <laughs> actually, uh, three things. Mining. Um, the, there was uh, big, big mines in North Idaho, and, and Spokane was the only real city close to this. So mm-hmm. we basically the headquarters of all the mines were here. And, and all the miners, even if they didn't live in Spokane, they spent all their off hours, you know, carousing in Spokane yeah, yeah. at the gambling halls and the saloons. <laughs> um, so mining, uh, logging, really big logging era in uh, both the north woods north of Spokane. A lot of people in Spokane don't realize, or in Seattle don't realize that everything north of Spokane is mountains and woods. Um, yeah, and what, and what? So there's a lot of logging, and then in North Idaho, which is right across, you know, just 10, 20 miles across the border, what, what, big, huge what, uh, lumbering operations. What other parts of Spokane history do you think are, because are, I know you spent about 10 years on the west side working for one of the newspapers over here, 30 yeah. years ago, I think. What what part of Sp- what parts of Spokane history or Spokane's, like, story and culture do people on the west side just kind of miss or not appreciate as much as someone who's lived there a long time? Um, you know, I, I think it's probably just, um, what a, what a central place it was for, um, for so many years. It was, um, it was never as big as Seattle, but it was almost, and, um, and so, and so you had, uh, you know, you had Montana on one side that was booming at certain times, especially with mining. And um, and there wasn't much in between Montana and Seattle except Spokane. So it was a huge uh, railroad hub. I mean, all the railroads converged here. We had like I don't know something like you know eighteen trains arriving every day or something. No, more than that. You know, thirty. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but the other thing was, I don't think that 
I don't think even people here realized what how important Spokane was in the labor movement. Um, and so in Seattle and Everett were too. I mean, there was big, huge wobbly disruptions in Seattle and Everett. Yeah. But Spokane probably had one of the biggest of them all, which was the free speech, uh, big free speech riots, or I, uh, I wouldn't call it riots. Well, there were riots, but the free speech struggle in Spokane, which was in um, 1909 and 1910, I believe. And uh, it was a really huge national story for a long time, and it was the very first um, civil disobedience um, uh, mass movement in, in America. Huh, it was yeah, a really I, big, it was a really big story. I don't know anything about that. I confess ignorance to that. Right, that I'm I'm, I'm uh, Exhibit A for someone on the West Side who doesn't doesn't know that story at all. Well, um, it basically was. It, it, Spokane was a big wobbly town, basically because of all the miners and loggers, um, and um, they they held they would uh, often hold. Um, have speed, you know, they'd set up a, uh, a soapbox on a corner downtown Spokane and give us, you know, kind of a big fiery speech about, you know, being oppressed, etc. And um, uh, the city council <clears throat> basically banned street speaking because of it, because people were complaining that they were clogging up the streets and, you know, just causing a big ruckus. And, uh, you know, clearly that's a free speech issue, and um, and the Wobblies weren't going to put up with it, and they decided that they were going to make Spokane there. And this was happening in other places all over the country too, especially all over the West. And so the Wobblies decided, and, and well, maybe I should define Wobblies: industrial workers of the yeah, world, yeah, huge, yeah. huge, huge radical union. Yeah, um, and. Um, and they um, decided to make Spokane, a, you know, kind of the perfect test case. So what they did was they said, okay, if you're going to arrest everybody who stands up on a street corner and tries to speak, what we're going to do is we're going to bring in people from all over the country to speak on your street corners, and you're going to have to arrest all of us. And, well, that's basically what happened. Wow. They brought in hundreds of people. <laughs> Um, they would get up on their soapbox and say one word, and the police would lead them off, and the next person would get up on the soapbox <laughs> and say a word, and the police would lead them off. Well, pretty soon they had 500 people. Try, try, they were trying to jail 500 people, and it just became this massive mess uh, because, in a national scandal, because... Um, the um, well, you just—I mean, they we didn't have we, the city didn't have facilities for 500 people. You know, they were they were they put them in like an elementary school for a while, but the conditions were terrible, and there was all kinds of you know exposés about the way these prisoners were being treated. Um, and by the way, while well, while they were being held in these jails is when they compiled the very famous uh, the wobble, very famous wobbly songbook called The Little Red Book. Oh, yeah. 
I had uh, one of those. Yeah, I had my father-in-law's yeah. old little red book. He was an old wobbly well, from the back in the forties. <laughs> that book, that was that came about in Spokane. I'll be darned. That's that cool. was spawned by the people in jail in Spokane, and um, and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and a whole bunch of, and other kind of uh, you know radical rabble rousers came and all got arrested, and there was all you know Elizabeth Gurley Flynn claimed that she was being you know, treated as a, I think, a, you know, like a sex slave or something in the prisons, and that got everybody all agitated. Wow. Um, they shut down the public newspaper. They raided it. Anyway, there's all kinds of stuff in it. It ended up being, um, it made, it, it, it basically made Spokane look so bad in the, in the eyes of the whole country because these stories were going out all over the country. Um, that they finally basically settled with the Wobblies and released them all wow. and said, yeah, you can speak on three corners if you want. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a great story. That's, I, yeah. Literally, I had, I had not heard that before. That's, that's awesome. It, and it lasted for months. I mean, it, wow. it, it went on forever and spoke in. At first they were like, yeah, let's get these rabble-rousers off our street. Mm. But pretty soon it was, it was more like, um, gosh, is making us look like a bunch of, you know, bugs. <laughs> we got it. We can't. We got to do something about this. Um, so that was probably, you know, the, at least of the stories that I, you know, that, that, that made a big national splash and it were important, you know, beyond just the event that had some relevance to the way the world worked afterwards. Yeah. That was probably the biggest the biggest one. Oh, yeah, just a, f- a few seconds left here. But one thing, I, I've, you know, I've been to Spokane a lot over the last 10 or 15 years. I've had family living over there. And I, I, I've seen the footage. I've seen the pictures. But the transformation of the city to ready it for Expo 74, which we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of next year, the, of the, you know, getting the rail lines all straightened out and turning the island to, into a park rather than a, a rail yard and everything. Were, were you in Spokane before that transformation? I was not, okay. but I have written about that. I, I work for History Link, which is the yeah, yeah. Uh, online encyclopedia of Washington State history. So I wrote a, a piece about that for them, and um, it really was an amazing thing. I mean, no city of this size had ever tried to stage a World's yeah, Fair. Nobody yeah. thought it could work, and there was a lot of skepticism. Uh, as it turned out, it worked really well. Yeah, and I mean, it was a really big success. Yeah. People came to Spokane from all over the world and, you know, had all kinds of famous entertainers. And, uh, I, I like when uh, when President Nixon was there for the opening ceremony and when Governor Dan Evans was there and Evans or Nixon thanked him as, thank you, Governor Evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Freudian so. slip in the middle of the Watergate investigation. All right. Yeah, yeah. Nixon, Nixon showed up right about the time when he was at his lowest point. Yeah. Was not, except he was not um, received very well. 74 was um, a tough year for that president. All right, all right Jim, Jim Kirshner, I really appreciate you joining. I'd love to have you back again sometime and talk more about Spokane and some other parts of your career and hear more about your Carl Maxey book. In the meantime, where can people find out more about you and see stuff about what you've written and your other projects? Do you have a website or something we can send people to? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ah, yes. Okay. Um, or I'll you can just Google Jim Kirshner, K-E-R-S-H-N-E-R, right. and, uh, and you'll see it. 
I'll put a link on our um, Facebook page of the Cascade History Facebook page. And again, I really appreciate you joining us on a Sunday night. I always say it's a tough time for our guests, but the audience loves it. And I really thank you for taking time out of your evening and hope we can do it again sometime. No problem. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Have a good night. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. Jim Kirshner over in Spokane uh, joining us on Cascade of History tonight. All right. Now, I said that um, uh, we're going to talk to a guest who's written a book called uh, The Shining Mountains in just a few minutes. But I had a, I'm going to play the viewer mail uh, sounder for this. Boy, that's loud. <laughs> that's a... Uh, because this is sort of a Facebook message from a guy named Arthur who uh, listens to the show a lot. And he, again, he thought we were going to play this song uh, last week. Maybe he thought we were going to play it the week before. But uh, there was the incident with the ferry boat a few weeks ago that where it ran aground off of uh, Mainbridge Island. And 40 years ago this October, another ferry boat ran aground. Very convoluted story. Don't have time to get into the story. But I do want to play the audio of the novelty song which was written by the Island City Jazz Band, performed on, of course, a 45 RPM record recorded of it, Elwa on the Rocks, here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Well, out in Friday Harbor, where the jazz bands play You can take a ferry out there Any time of the day You can cruise by Grindstone Harbor And when the ferry docks You can pour a long, tall, cool one Called Elwha on the Rocks You can have your margaritas You can have your toddies hot But all we're drinking here tonight Is Elwha on the Rocks with a lady in the wheelhouse you can cruise along the shore you can blow the ferry whistle as you cruise by her front door you can blame it on the steering if the ferry rams the docks and we'll pour a long, tall, cool one called Elwha on the Rocks. You can have your margaritas, you can have your hot. But all we're drinking here tonight is Elwha on the Rocks. I'm going to fade out the Island City Jazz Band because that's one of those novelty songs that's really long. I like a novelty song that's about two minutes and 20 seconds long. I think that's about the extent of my attention span. Plus, I want to allow a lot of time to talk to Alex Christie. Let's see if we can get her on the phone here. Let's see. Alex, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hi, oh, terrific. Felix. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Um, you are, you're based in California, I believe. That's right, San Francisco. Yeah, and you've written a book about your, the, let's see, it's a younger brother of your great-great-great-grandfather. Exactly. And what's His the book called? What, what's it about? The, the book is called The Shining Mountains, and it's a historical novel, and it basically tells the story of the pre-American Northwest, the fur trade period, because my great-great-great-uncle Angus MacDonald was a fur trader for the Hudson Bay Company. Wow. And, like... Almost all of the men who traded for fur in the 19th century in this area, he married an indigenous woman, and they had a long, 
happy marriage and a big family, and I just wanted to tell the story of this incredible multicultural world that I never learned about in school, and probably you didn't either. Yeah, that Hudson's Bay Company, I mean, it's if you could go back 160, 70 years, something like that, um, help help us understand how big an influence, how big a force Hudson's Bay was in a huge part of what's now Western, Northwestern United States, Western Canada, even part of the Midwest Dude. and everything. Yeah, to ex- Dude. explain well, that. Well, they, you know, sure. So they, at one point, they controlled trade over one-tenth of the surface of the planet, which gives you <laughs> an idea of how big they were. Um, they were chartered, I think, in the early, very early 1800s and started trading for fur from Hudson's Bay, hence the name, and over time moved all the way to the West Coast. So they had hundreds of forts all through uh, what is now Canada, but up until 1846, they also controlled a huge district to from the, it's called the Oregon Country or the Columbia District, and it went all through present-day Washington, Oregon, Idaho, part of Montana, you know, just a vast swath. And basically, they came and they traded for beaver mostly, um, but also other furs with native trappers, with mixed-race trappers, and sent all of those furs off to London by ship to turn in, into beaver top hats. So yeah. they were very, they were a huge imperial, you know, globalized corporation, uh, you know, 180 years ago. Yeah, and then the in that time of, you know, 1846, that's when the Treaty of 1846 sets the boundary right. at the 49th parallel and all the doubt about whether or not the uh, English or the British would hang on to what's now Washington north of the Columbia River. That's all sort of erased. It all ends finally, and Hudson's Bay people are chased out of here. They, of course, they've already moved the fort from Vancouver up to Victoria and everything. They, you know, they they knew it was going to happen. The writing was on the wall. But well, I mean, go ahead. They did and they didn't. You know, they actually hung on for another twenty five years yeah. because there was a little matter of being compensated for yep. the value of their land. Yeah. And so my my ancestor's brother Angus McDonald, he was the last chief trader for the Hudson Bay Company in the United States, mm-hmm. and he was posted at Fort Colville, which is was inundated by the Grand Coulee Dam, but was, you know, up north near Kettle Falls in, in Washington. And yeah, we call it Colville. It's a, it's pronounced Colville. I always, it's, oh, it's one Colville. of those. Oh, Colville. Well, know. they call it Colville. Okay. Um, and and he was there up until 1871. So, you know, they, they basically, he was the last one left, and he blew out the lamp and shut the door, you know. Oh, he, wow. He Wait, was trying, whoa, he was there until 1871 for Hudson's Bay and at Colville? That's right. That's crazy. That's right. I had no idea. That. I thought yep. they, most of them just big. Yeah, okay, that's right. Because there was all there was the big long settlement required. All that negotiating, all the different land and everything yeah. for the Puget Sound they Agricultural up, Company and all that stuff. Right. They wound all that up, I think, in 1866. But there was that little matter of the Civil War that interfered <laughs> with them. You know, so it took a long time. Was um, Was he sad to have to leave after all that time to have to go north of Colville? Well, he actually didn't go north. He had a choice, and this oh. is where it's really interesting. He um, he chose to remain in the United States with his indigenous family, and he moved back to Montana to a fort that he founded there in the same year that they made the deal in 1846 called Fort Cana, which is in Montana. It's the oldest building in the state of Montana, and he lived there with his his wife, Catherine, who was Nez Perce, and their 12, 10 of their 12 children who survived. So he he made the choice not to go north with the wow. Hudson Bay Company, but to remain here, become an American citizen, 
and all of his many, many descendants live on the Flathead and the Nez Perce reservations That's in great. Idaho, Montana. So has this story been sort of gestating in, in you as a writer for a long time? You know, I did not, I knew, I grew up partly in British Columbia and, and in California and Montana, and I knew that we had these ancestors in the family tree, but it wasn't until my, I have a younger brother who's a historian and a, and a scholar, and he found out about the son of Angus McDonald and his wife Catherine was a fellow named Duncan McDonald, and he actually became a newspaper reporter in 1877 and was the first person of indigenous background to write about an Indian war from a native point of view. So wow. he published a bunch of articles in a Montana newspaper about the Nez Perce War of 1877. And my brother found these articles and wrote a scholarly piece on it, and then he handed me all his, detail, all his books. He said, here, this would make a great novel, you know. Wow. Uh, that's so, amazing. Yeah. So, so your 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 um, great 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 grandfather and your great 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 uncle. How did they come to, or how did your great 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 uncle come to work for Hudson's Bay in the first place? Well, according to family lore, which interestingly enough has come down through three different branches of our family, he was living in the Scottish Highlands um, outside of Inverness, not far, um, at, at a place called Conan, and he poached. And it was a time when the English were kicking the Scots out of the Highlands, called the Highland Clearances, and he got caught um, either poaching, we think, a stag or a, or a salmon, we don't know for sure, and, <laughs> and he, his parents hustled him on a boat to get him out of, because it was a hanging offense wow. at the time. So he left in 1838 and, and came to North America, but his great uncle, Archibald, was already working for the company um, and was the chief trader at Colville, as you say. I'll be done. So he had a way to, he had, it was an escape route. And then, so the research you did, did you have to go to these other archives, like in uh, Manitoba and that kind of thing? Or how did you, how did you research this novel? No, I didn't. Um, luckily for us, he, Angus was quite prominent. So there's a lot of material in Montana, in Helena, and in the University of Montana in the archives there. And then for the Nez Perce War, I spent a, quite a bit of time at Pullman, at the University of Washington, Pullman, uh-huh. or Washington State, uh-huh. right? um, because that's where Mc, the McCorder archive is. And Duncan was an important source of information on the Nez Perce War. So, you know, I, I grew up in, driving every summer of my life through eastern Washington to Lake Okanagan, where my grandparents lived. So I knew the area quite well, you know, and I just kept coming back and meeting people. And, and I have to say, I was extremely fortunate that my family, my newfound cousins on the Flathead Reservation and the Nez Perce really embraced the idea that I would write about their great-grandparents and help me to approach each tribe and get official approval for, for me to do that project. So I did a lot of consultation that's, uh, with the Native people. That's great. Know, was, that's that's really important. Yeah. Did, now, did they know that there was this other branch of the family that included you and your brother? And or was this, I mean, was this Not a surprise really. for everybody? I mean, they okay. knew that, yeah, they knew he was Scottish and they knew where he came from. I think in the 90s, there was a, a, a very prominent Highland Scottish historian came to Montana and stumbled across the McDonald family and was kind of astounded. And he wrote a great scholarly book about the, the McDonald clan in America. So we had, they knew about the Scottish ancestry, but they didn't know about us. And so I really had, was fortunate. I, I actually gave a slideshow in Montana a couple of years ago telling them about who their ancestors, Highland ancestors were, you know, and That's great. Went and visited all these places. So, yeah, it's been really rewarding, I think, for both sides to come together. 
All right. So in the in when you sell the film rights, who will play your great 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 uncle in his prime of his life? Which <laughs> actor who's going to play him? Oh my God! You know, I always wanted Ralph Fiennes to play. I wrote a previous <laughs> novel called Gutenberg's Apprentice, and I always thought he'd make a great Gutenberg. But I think he would make a great Angus as well. So. Yeah, he's getting on in years, though. I mean, you don't have to be the older Angus, plenty. right? No, I'm very bad on pop culture. Okay. <laughs> you read the book and feel it, and you tell me who you think. Be the all right, all right. I, I mean, think it would make a great miniseries, I definitely Yeah, I mean, the golden age of television, I mean, something like this yeah. where it's sort of, I mean, and okay, here's a question for you. So how, how novelized, how much novel, how much history, what's the fiction, non-fiction uh, ratio in this, if you had to guess? Good question. Um, very, very factual. So I'm a journalist by training, and so once I learned all of the history, and it took a lot, a lot of years to really soak it up, um, you know, the events of the novel all occurred as described. Yeah. But for me, what's interesting as a writer, as a fiction writer, is just to imagine why the people did the things they did, who they were, you know, how they made the choices that they made. Because I know exactly at each point where he was posted, what was happening. You know, he was in the middle of all of these critical he entertained Governor Stevens when he came through surveying for the railroad in the Washington <laughs> Territory. You know, he was caught in the middle of the Yakima War. You know, oh, he man. was in all these places. So it was much more about trying to imagine who this guy was and how their marriage survived. And, you know, it was a terrible time for her people. And he's a descendant of the Glencoe McDonald's who were massacred at Glencoe many hundreds of years ago. So I think he had a tremendous empathy for his wow. native skin, you know? Great. Uh, that's how I wrote the story. Well, it sounds like an exciting book. It's, it sounds like it's long overdue to have a, a novel like this focused on Hudson's Bay and all the different geographic spots you mentioned that are in what's now Washington and other parts of the Northwest. It's called The Shining Mountains. Where can people get it and where can people go to the Internet for more information? Any good bookstore. It's available on any one of your favorite, your independent bookstore or on bookstore.org or Amazon or Barnes and & Noble. And go to my website, Alex Christie, A-L-I-X-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E.com. And, and I'm going to be touring all through the region. I'm going to be in eastern Washington in June, so I would love to see people there. Oh, I'll put uh, links on our the Cascade of History Facebook page, and keep me posted on those. Uh, put those when you're going to be uh, making appearances and stuff. We'll help get the word out about those as well. Because I, I think people so people would love that. Sounds like it's a great book, and I really appreciate you joining us on Cascade of History. Alex Christie, author of The Shining Mountains. Thanks, and have a good night. Okay. Great pleasure. Lovely talking. Thanks. Same here. Good night. Alex Christie and The Shining Mountains is the book. And boy, that sounds like I, I, get a, I, I like the idea of that. I like the idea of a novelization of someone who was in all those places and uh, like a Zelig like figure being there when Isaac Stevens comes through doing his railroad survey. All right, well, we're almost uh, out of time here on this week's episode of Cascade of History. I want to thank uh, Tony Lampa, who joined us, who was at the uh, Hinkle Butte Lookout Tower for many years, Jim Kirshner in Spokane, and on his. Uh, his work there as a journalist covering local history and Alex Christie and her book, The Shining Mountains. We'll be here next Sunday night with another exciting episode of Cascade of History. Until then, I'm Felix Bedell. This is Space 101.1 FM. Um, please visit our website, space101fm.org, and contribute. We've got lots of great shows all throughout the week, and if you give during Give Big, your money goes further, and it helps keep the lights on and keeps the transmitter going and the streamer going and everything. I'll see you next week. This has been Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.